Good morning. For those of you who don't know me, I'm Mike Austin. I've been a member at Covenant for about 10 years now. Thomas has asked me to help out today with the preaching. So let's start with a word of prayer. Almighty God, we give thanks for this day and for this time together in your presence. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Quick show of hands. How many of you have ever seen a herd of wild horses in full gallop, either in real life or in a movie or on television? Yeah, I, I want to see the people who didn't raise their hand after the service. <clears throat> what an awesome display of unbridled strength that is. Now, how many of you have ridden a horse? Okay. How was that possible? I mean, think about it. An adult thoroughbred horse weighs about 1,000 pounds, can gallop as fast as 45 miles per hour. How can a, say, 180-pound human that can run maybe 15 miles an hour at a very short distance downhill with the wind behind him <laughs> make that 1,000-pound horse not only stand still long enough to be saddled, but then allow that puny creature to mount it and ride it. Ponder that riddle for a moment as we go to today's text. From the Gospel of Matthew, chapter five, verse five, hear the word of the Lord. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. This is the word of the Lord. And Ken down here is thinking we're going to be taking up offering in about five minutes, right? Based on. <laughs> As I'm sure you know, our text comes from the Sermon on the Mount. By the time of this sermon, Jesus was already drawing big crowds with people coming from as far away as Damascus and Gaza. Those cities are about 175 miles apart, roughly the distance from Waco to San Antonio. The crowds around Jesus could be as large as 5,000 men, so maybe 10,000 counting women and children. That's about 1% of the total population of that area at that time, depending on who you talk to. Here in Central Texas, imagine about 50,000 people from as far away as San Antonio and Waco walking together on a Lake Travis hill to hear a millennial carpenter preacher about the kingdom of God. I wonder how big South by Southwest or Austin City Limits would be if people had to walk to it. Just who were these people? And why were they following this 30-something carpenter around the Galilean countryside? There were probably a few fundamentalist Sadducees a handful of the more liberal Pharisees, even some Gentiles. Some were probably Roman citizens, but most probably not. 
but the crowd was most likely dominated by Jewish peasants, mostly illiterate farmers, ranchers, fishermen, and craftsmen, surviving in a barter-based subsistence economy, struggling from day to day to feed their families, all while being bled dry by Pilate's and Herod's tax collectors. They toiled their lives away in poverty and disease so that Roman legions could be fed and equipped. Herod could build his many fabulously extravagant temples and palaces. The Jewish priesthood could clothe themselves in magnificent robes and lavishly decorate the temple with gold and precious stones. And the emperor in faraway Rome could have a ready supply of exotic foods, cloth, trinkets, and slaves from the farthest reaches of the empire. I presume there was also a good representation of zealots, Jewish patriots fomenting rebellion against the empire in a desperate struggle to expel the Romans from the Holy Land, mostly by force of arms, and also always on the lookout for the Messiah, the man foretold by prophecy that would drive out the oppressors with his military prowess. Economically, the vast majority of the people gathering around Jesus were living in a permanent equivalent of our Great Depression. Politically, they had been stripped of any semblance of self-determination. Spiritually, they felt betrayed and abandoned by a priesthood that treated them as sheep to be fleeced at the temple. In short, Jesus was preaching to a population desperately seeking deliverance. And to these people, Jesus said things like, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. Blessed are the peacemakers. I wonder how the zealots felt about that one. All of these beatitudes were perfectly on point and all of them completely meaningless without some sort of backbone to hold the body upright, a spine to keep the pages of a book together. Jesus also said, blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. An English dictionary gives three definitions for the word meek. One, enduring injury with patience and without resentment. Two, deficient in spirit and courage. Three, not violent or strong. Synonyms for, three, for these definitions would be passive, cowardly, and weak. If this is what Jesus meant, I can easily imagine some of these people, especially the zealots, responding something like this. Blessed are the meek? Look, Jesus, you don't get it. We've been under the yoke of Rome for almost 100 years. We aren't going to throw off that yoke by being meek, okay? And what do you mean, inherit the earth? We'll settle for taking back Israel. Some people are claiming you're the Messiah. Well, how are you going to deliver us with that kind of talk? Today in the United States, we don't wear the yoke of a foreign imperial oppressor, 
but many detractors of the Christian church might well agree with that zealot perspective. And for all that, America does suffer under its share of heavy burdens. Three quick examples. As of 2007, the richest 20% of Americans owned 85% of the country's wealth. The bottom 40%, on the other hand, control less than 1%. Are those on the short end of this staggering economic imbalance supposed to face their situation by passively enduring with patience and without resentment? In 2017, mass shootings, incidents where four or more people were shot, not counting the shooter, accounted for 14,000 deaths and over 29,000 injuries. Can the surviving victims and families bear that oppressive yoke being deficient in spirit and courage? The 2017 State of Mental Health in America report from the nonprofit group Mental Health America says that one in five adult Americans, over 40 million people, have a mental health condition, but over half of them did not receive treatment, either because they can't afford it or because there's no one in their community to provide it. The rate of youth depression continues to rise, exceeding 11% in 2014, yet 80% of youth with severe depression get inadequate treatment or no treatment at all. Is it enough to tell the mentally afflicted to face their problems with a lack of strength? As a nation and as a people, we bear many such burdens refugees caught in a political maelstrom over immigration, many thousands of people, especially women and children, in the virtual or literal chains of sexual and economic slavery, an epidemic of opioid addiction, racial tensions and divisions that stubbornly persist even after more than 50 years of civil rights activism, and a divisive political climate that often cripples our state and national leaders from dealing with any of these issues with a sincere, constructive attempt at collaboration, much less mutual respect. I suspect Jesus could draw a lot more than 10,000 or even 50,000 people on that Lake Travis hillside. Thinking about all of this, I can't help but hear James Taylor singing, won't you look down upon me, Jesus? You've got to help me make a stand. But is blessed are the meek really going to reach that audience? In our text, Jesus quotes Psalm 37, verse 11. But the meek shall inherit the land. The Hebrew word translated here as meek is anav. Anav describes the person who accepts God's guidance, whatever God may send his way. Think Abraham taking Isaac to sacrifice him. Moses returning to Egypt. Think Joseph in captivity, but not acting like a captive. Think Mary when informed she would bear the Son of God. The Hebrew word is about perfect obedience. Think Jonah, but only after the whale spits him out on the sand. 
Matthew chose to translate the Hebrew anav into the Greek word praus. Praus was used, among other things, as a military term to describe the temperament of a trained war horse. Wild stallions were captured and broken for riding and trained for warfare. They retained their fierce spirit, courage, and power, but at the slightest pressure of the rider's leg, they could gallop full speed into battle or with a single word come to a sliding stop. They were unfazed by arrows, spears, or torches. Such a trained horse was said to be meeked. As one modern writer says, to be meeked is to be taken from a state of wild rebellion and made completely loyal to and dependent upon one's master. It is also to be taken from an atmosphere of fearfulness and made unflinching in the presence of danger. These stallions became submissive, but certainly not spineless. They embodied power under control, strength with forbearance. Aristotle defined the praus person as one who feels anger on the right grounds, against the right person, in the right manner, at the right moment, for the right amount of time. Can you think of any better way to describe Jesus when he cleansed the temple? So the Greek perspective of this third beatitude might go something like this. Blessed are the self-restrained, for they will not go off half-cocked. <laughs> if you combine the Hebrew sense of perfect obedience with the Greek sense of perfect control, what do you get? A God-controlled life. Blessed are the strong but gentle, for they will be compassionate. Blessed are they who are able to hand their fear over to God and stand fearless, for they will not flinch in the face of struggle. And this view is consistent with Old Testament teaching. Proverbs 16.32 reads, One who is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and one whose temper is controlled is better than one who captures the city. From that hillside by the Sea of Galilee to Calvary's cross, Jesus again and again manifested this notion of equilibrium, of full and complete control of all his faculties, of inner mastery, and of full obedience and submission to his Father. He personified the sense of meekness he was asking of his disciples. And it wasn't weakness or cowardice or senseless passivity. As Paul said in his letter to the Philippians, though he was in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited. From the temptation by Satan to his confrontation with Pilate, Jesus chose not to exercise power for his own benefit. Through many healings and grace-filled encounters with sinners, and during the cleansing of the temple, he did use his strength in the service of the kingdom of God. As he taught the disciples to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And as he ultimately prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, 
My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not what I want, but what you want. Is this kind of meekness still relevant in the world today? I don't know the solutions for all of our current struggles, but we do have some modern exemplars of Jesus' meekness that may shine some light on the path ahead. In his struggle to free the Indian nation from the yoke of British imperialism, Mahatma Gandhi said, only he can take great resolves who has indomitable faith in God and has fear of God. Can anyone doubt that Gandhi's meekness exemplified these words? In Martin Luther King Jr.'s call for nonviolent civil disobedience during the height of the civil rights movement, he said, the ultimate measure of a man is not where he stands in moments of comfort and convenience, but where he stands at times of challenge and controversy. He also said, I am not interested in power for power's sake, but I'm interested in power that is moral, that is right, and that is good. We have come a long way since the days of Jim Crow and the inherent racism and state-mandated segregation. And no one can deny that Martin Luther King's powerful meekness in the face of challenge and controversy was a blazing beacon in the long night. As we face both our societal and individual struggles, how do we achieve the meekness Jesus calls for and that these men so amply demonstrated? We move in that direction when we pursue him through prayer, study, and worship, because that's how we learn to listen and obey. We move in that direction when we can set aside our pride long enough to recognize and acknowledge the true source of our strength and salvation. We move towards equilibrium between faithful patience and purpose-driven action when we take a deep breath and choose growth and understanding over being right. Jesus doesn't say it'll be easy. He does say in many different ways that it's particularly difficult, if not impossible, when we try to do it all on our own. And we can get nowhere until we humbly acknowledge our sins and allow Jesus Christ to wash those sins away with the blood of the cross. Then, and only then, can we once again find the strength and courage to take on the trials and tribulations of our broken lives in this broken world. <clears throat> Ultimately, it's not about throwing the Romans out of the Holy Land. It's not about kicking the priests out of the temple. It's about relying on the love and grace and power of the Almighty God and serving Him by serving each other. This is how we usher in the kingdom of God. This is how we inherit the earth. Let us pray. Almighty and powerful God, you are the source of all power in the universe 
and we so often fail to obey, fail to relinquish control to you, and in so doing, cause our suffering and others to be greater than it needs to be. Help us to understand that you do not call us to be weak or fearful or ineffectually passive, but you do call us to a meekness born out of total obedience to you and complete reliance on your strength. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.